Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Hey guys, I also wanted to tell you about Zenledger, the best tax software for cryptocurrency investors and accountants. It's fast and easy to use, and you can get all of your crypto transactions in one place so you can trade smarter and optimize your taxes. Zenledger offers 24-7 customer support by phone, email, or chat to help you get your taxes done stress-free, and it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee because they know you'll love it. Zenledger is giving an exclusive 15% discount to our listeners when you use coupon code CHAIN15. Go to zenledger.io, linked in the show notes below, to get started and get your taxes done fast. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have on Yaniv, who's the co-founder of The Graph, very well-known project around the space. Yaniv, how's it going? Hey, doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to learning more about the graph and kind of your vision for Web3 and everything you've learned, you know, so far. So I guess let's jump right into the graph itself. What exactly is the graph? We're building a global API for all public data that's curated in a decentralized way with incentives. Um, So on the graph, developers build what we call subgraphs, which are basically open APIs that describe how to index data from Web3 data sources and expose it over a convenient GraphQL API. Um, So we launched our hosted service over a year ago, and we have a thousand subgraphs deployed uh, by well-known projects like Uniswap, Synthetix, ENS, Aragon, uh, Gnosis, Decentraland, Pull Together, uh, and a bunch more. And uh, we're going to be launching our decentralized network later this year. So interesting. So just to put this in context for everyone listening, what would like a example query be using you guys? Uh, so Aragon just launched their uh, Aragon Core app. And uh, that Jura dashboard is built on the graph. So if you want to see, you know, show me all of the active um, disputes uh, that uh, uh, jurors are voting on, that could be a query. Or maybe I want to see, um, you know, show me the last 10 disputes that completed, or maybe just the ones that failed. And for each one, show me, you know, what evidence, uh, you know, was used for those disputes. So, so those are all kind of example queries. Uh, so, so really the graph is about kind of powering applications and those can be any kind of application. They can be DeFi applications, uh, games, you know, collectibles. Um, we're seeing lots of, uh, you know, different, you know, areas where people are building applications on Ethereum and IPFS. Could you put in context how hard this is to do today? Like if I want to figure out, you know, how many crypto kitties were born, you know, in a certain time period or, you know, what the most expensive one is, it's really hard to find this data, you know, relatively quickly. Yeah, that's right. And, and the problem is that, you know, blockchains uh, grow in size really quickly, right? So they're, uh, you know, many gigabytes to run archive nodes, you know, uh, you're looking at larger than that. And these blockchain nodes aren't storing data for efficient retrieval, uh, right? They're, they're storing uh, the transactions in a block, and uh, sometimes they'll, sh- they'll calculate and keep up to date the latest state. But even that is not enough to be able to run a query like the ones that you were describing. You know, for example, with databases, you know, databases are what we use in the traditional web stack to um, answer queries. And those databases maintain indices or indexes, uh, which basically are organizing the data for efficient retrieval. And you have folks at traditional web companies like DBAs, whose full-time job is to make sure that the data is being stored uh, for efficient retrieval so that you can uh, query it quickly. And so that's, that's just a layer of the stack that's been completely missing uh, from Web3. And so that's what the graph uh, solves. And we do it in a standardized way with these subgraphs. So you know, before the graph, you could 
write a bunch of custom code and run it on your own proprietary server that does that indexing, but then there's no way for anybody else to know that you did those computations correctly. And here we're trying to build trustless systems. Uh, so it's a lot better if we can have a standardized way of describing how to do this indexing so that you could, for example, form that work on a decentralized network of nodes and not have to you know, operate trusted infrastructure yourself. So this might be a naive question, but is it that simple to use the graph where I'm literally you know, typing in this query, you know, how many CryptoKitties are there? Or is there a lot of coding? I'm just kind of wondering what the UX is. Like, how do I actually, you know, use the graph? Yeah, to, to build an application uh, on top of an existing subgraph could not be easier. So it's just like you're describing. We support a query language from Facebook called GraphQL that makes it really, really simple uh, to um, write those styles of queries. Uh, like you described. And um, GraphQL has already been growing in popularity in the traditional Web2 world over the last five years. Uh, so, so Facebook uh, you know, released GraphQL because it solved all of their data fetching uh, problems across all of their products. And uh, since then, you know, companies like Yelp and GitHub and Airbnb and on and on have switched to GraphQL because it's just such a convenient query language for building applications. And so as a, a UI developer, an application developer, uh, that couldn't be easier. Now, um, there is work uh, to integrate the graph, and um, that's for building these subgraphs. And, you know, the benefit of doing it on the graph is that, you know, you can kind of do that work once and then the entire industry can benefit from that work. Building a subgraph, uh, you're basically defining, you know, here are the data sources that I want to listen to. Here's how I want to transform that data. And sometimes, you know, you might have some complex logic there to like decode some data from different data sources. And, you know, maybe you want to build some aggregations. Um, so there could be a fair amount of logic there. Um, but, uh, you know, once you've done that work, now it's available to everybody over this open API. That's huge. I mean, what's your vision for what the graph can enable? Cause you know, in my head, I see the value in being able to access this data, use it once, be able to access it very easily, but I am having trouble kind of trying to figure out what this will drive. Like, does this make current applications better or is this for new applications or people that just want more data and information on what's currently built on Ethereum? I think it's going to enable an entirely new class of applications. And I think it's going to enable Web3, which I think is going to be a brand new computing platform, is, is fairly different from what we see today. But, but in general, you know, the vision is that there's this global API with all the world's structured information, right? all the world's public information indexed and easily accessible. And so whatever kind of application I want to build on top of you know, the global API, um, I can do that with just a few lines of code and I can deploy it and it'll run forever. Yeah, that's, that's huge. You basically spelled it out perfectly there. And you know, the other point worth bringing up is that Developers today have to choose between building kind of a performant application or one that's, you know, truly decentralized. Like they have to deal with all of these trade-offs, but the graph kind of comes in and kind of helps them break that trade-off, you know, triangle or trilemma. Do you kind of view that as a key for you guys or was that the point? Yeah, d definitely. And I think, you know, Web3 is still very early, right? We're still building the core protocols. The protocols aren't even finished yet. And so, you know, in 2017, 2018, we saw a lot of projects, you know, selling these ideas of decentralized applications. And, you know, it turns out that you couldn't really build those applications and, and certainly not um, apps that were nice and, and usable. And so, you know, the indexing layer was one of these areas where people just, made that trade-off where they said, you know what, there's no good way to do this in a decentralized way today. So I'm just going to write all of this custom code and I'm just going to run my own server and that's how it's going to be. And, you know, I, I definitely have sympathy for teams that wanted to ship products. And, you know, I think that that was probably the right call at the time, but that doesn't mean that that's how we're going to be building applications in the future. Um, you know, there's a lot of real benefits uh, to having decentralized infrastructure. And, you know, the fact of not needing to trust teams 
to continue to be in business and to pay server bills and um, you know to have their interests aligned with your interests is is kind of a, a core tenant of the space. And so I think that you know the more of this kind of computing we can push down into the protocol layer, uh, the better. And you know besides the you know the trustlessness. Uh, and you know the the scalability and uh, you know some of these other uh, benefits that you can get out of uh, you know uh, economies of scale and having shared public infrastructure. Um, I think it's also going to enable a whole set of uh, new applications where basically because it's running on this public infrastructure, you have a, a whole new level of composability uh, that you just couldn't have before. Yeah, that's fair. It definitely enables composability in a radically new way, which I think is kind of underrated. The other question for you there is just kind of the status of the graph. Like, where are you guys at now? You know, have you overcome any massive hurdles? Um, I am a little bit newer to the graph, so apologies if this might have been you know, redundant. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, we, we, we've had uh, several big milestones already. So, um, you know, we, we open sourced our graph node um, in June of 2018. And uh, had a bunch of projects start building on us there. Uh, then uh, last January, so over a year ago, we held uh, our first graph day, uh, which is a big uh, conference that we hold. And there we launched our hosted service and our graph explorer. Uh, so in our first version that we launched there, um, we were running a bunch of these graph nodes that do this indexing. Uh, we ship this really great UI called Graph Explorer, which helps people discover these subgraphs and easily uh, use them for, for building their applications. And uh, since then, we've had just a bunch of projects uh, in the space building on top of uh, the graph using that hosted service. So after that point, um, in his, in, in spending a fair amount of time just onboarding all of these projects, uh, we started focusing more of our attention on the decentralized network. And um, late last year, we published a blog post called The Graph Network in Depth um, that details all of the incentives and architecture and details for the decentralized network. And uh, we've been doing a lot of work on that. And so, uh, you know, the next big milestone that we've got coming up is going to be launching our test net and then launching the network. That's very important. Yeah, I'm excited to see how the testnet goes. And, you know, I'm on your Explorer now, and I'll link to it in the show notes for everybody here, but, you know, I'm looking at your Explorer page and you have some really cool projects listed here. So, like, for instance, you have synthetics listed right on your Explorer page. How does a developer go about interacting or querying synthetics through you guys? Like, are they getting basic information, like, you know, number of synths or, or open interest, or are they getting you know, pretty in-depth info here. Yeah, there, there's a lot of in-depth information. So uh, the team at Synthetics has built their subgraph, which indexes, you know, a bunch of data um, from their contracts. Uh, so uh, the way that you query it is you can browse the GraphQL schema. So it's a relationship, uh, sorry, it's a relational schema. So uh, you can see, for example, the SNX holders, you can see um, assets that uh, were issued, uh, details about uh, rewards, um, uh, things that were burned, uh, so all, all the past transfers. So all of that data is available for querying over GraphQL. And then uh, we expose this public GraphQL endpoint that you can just consume directly from your uh, front-end applications. So whether that's like a web or a mobile app, most UI libraries now have um, good support for GraphQL. And so you can just query that data efficiently directly from your application. Yaniv, do you think that the ability to query this data from projects through the graph more easily opens up the projects to more you know, potentially critical eyes? Like, I think the synthetics team is awesome, and I'm just using them as an example here. But you know, we no longer have to trust what a team will put out on their medium post, right? Because through the graph, we can query these things and make sure that the data is actually legitimate. Yeah, that that's true. And, and I think it's a positive, right? Because all of these protocols want usage. And so the easier it is to consume the data, the easier it is to integrate their protocol with your applications, uh, the more usage can be driven to those protocols. 
And if the graph is live, like let's say the graph went live with its main net, you know, a year or two ago, and you said it helps composability really well. How much faster do you think DeFi or Web3 would have grown with something like the graph? Because if I'm thinking from a developer standpoint, I have to work directly with the teams at like Uniswap and Synthetics and Maker to build new applications for the most part. But if the graph was live, I really wouldn't have to do that. Yeah, t- totally. So, you know, for a lot of these teams, actually building out their indexing infrastructure is is one of the uh, most time-consuming things that they have to do before they can launch their applications. Um, so that can save, you know, six to 12 months on go-to-market just for building a good usable application. Um, and then uh, that gets multiplied for every team that wants to integrate it. So if I want to build, you know, a banking front end um, on top of these DeFi protocols, or I want to build something like a DeFi Pulse, or you know, a- any kind of application that consumes that data um, with the graph, that work is trivial. Yaniv, what are some examples of you know Web three apps that you're seeing today? A lot of these things are, are still pretty early, but you're seeing some some really cool experimentation with what these kind of you know internet native um, uh, you know organization systems might look like. And so, for example, I think the the developments happening with DAOs are are really interesting. So uh, you know, a lot of people have kind of followed um, Moloch and uh, Metacartel, which are two really cool DAOs for um, you know funding. Uh, development on top of ethereum and um you know there there are some other experiments in that direction that i think are very promising uh so for example uh aragon uh you know just launched their aragon court uh where you know we can have um you know judges uh on on top of this internet native jurisdiction you know voting on disputes and and i think that you know those types of things while they're very early you know just point uh to this you know, exciting, uh, you know, kind of uh, future where, um, you know, we're able to kind of coordinate natively uh, on the internet. Um, Now, for me personally, if we look out to the next, you know, year or two, um, you know, I'm very just kind of focused on, you know, what kind of things are, do people in the, in the crypto community uh, do on a regular basis? And, and how can we get them to start doing those things on Web3? Uh, so, so for example, at the graph, we have a blog and, um, you know, we've already transitioned off of medium. And I think that, you know, medium is one of these kind of web two platforms that have started to kind of exert their control. You know, they put up paywalls and, um, you know, they're kind of limited in what you can do with, uh, your posts that are on medium. And so, you know, we've already switched uh, to our own custom blog, which is, you know, has much nicer illustrations and custom branding. And um, we would like to transition our blog to be fully Web3 native. Another example of a Web2 app like that is LinkedIn, where I feel that, you know, LinkedIn uh, has basically become unusable just with the amount of spam. The crypto community kind of operates as this network of folks that, you know, are sharing a lot of ideas together, you know, they're working together on, uh, you know, a lot of different things they are going to a lot of the same events. And so, um, you know, uh, I'd like to see us, uh, you know, perform more of those types of actions on top of web three apps where we can start to use, um, you know, these applications just within our own community. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, that's going to start to, to seed some of the network effects uh, where instead of doing these things on top of these centralized Web 2 apps, uh, we can do it in a way where, um, you know, we're using our own portable identities. You know, you can store your own private data in a safe and secure way that you can move across applications. Uh, you can contribute to the network effects of, you know, all of this data that can be shared across apps. And, and so that's, that's, those are some of the areas that we're looking at in the short term. No, that's fair. And, you know, data sovereignty is a big one for sure, especially on apps. But the other thing is, I don't think people realize how much of their data is being extracted from Web2 apps. I mean, I think they get it, but I don't know if they really understand how powerful the Web2 giants really are, because all you see is your own newsfeed. You know, you don't see the aggregate of their global control. 
Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, on Web 2, public data isn't really public and private data isn't really private. And, and so I think, you know, as we re-architect these applications to actually, you know, keep your private data encrypted and on your device and then make, you know, all public data truly available so that any application can use it, um, you know, I think we're going to, you know, see an explosion of applications that can leverage those tools to build really great experiences. Yaniv, when do you think we'll get these experiences? I know we've kind of talked about rough timelines, but is this something we'll start to see pop up this year or is this more of a five to 10 year roadmap? Yeah, I think we're going to see really great usable apps already this year. Now, one of the tricks with, for example, Ethereum is that you do need to use a wallet. And, um, you know, this is something that I would, uh, you know, recommend to all of your listeners that they go out and make sure that you've got, you know, a a Web3 Ethereum wallet, you know, installed on your phone uh, and that you're comfortable, you know, signing transactions, uh, you know, with Ethereum. And, you know, this is, for example, you know, one of these little, uh, friction points that exist today that the early adopters, I think, can kind of get over that hurdle. And I think we'll see, you know, really great applications that maybe still force you to like sign a transaction. Uh, but if you're using a wallet like Coinbase Wallet or Trust Wallet or Argent, um, uh, you know, it, it can still be a pretty good experience. But then I think, you know, once we get to an initial you know, set of network effects. And then, you know, the platforms like Apple and Google need to start taking notice. I think you, you could imagine a world, you know, I don't know if it's in two years or three years where that kind of transaction signing capability is just built natively into in the, uh, you know, platforms, um, you know, where you're just, you know, all the key management is handled for you completely transparently. You're just using your biometrics. And, and I think all of that stuff will will get you know very streamlined over time. Yeah, I mean, you're. I just listened to Jason Choi's podcast with Ethereum, and you know he just brought up the guest. His name's escaping me, but he brought up some really good points. It's just so many steps to interact with ADAP, right? Like you have to get money, KYC, download a wallet, understand gas fees, gas price, send it. You know, wait until your transaction gets confirmed. It just seems like the hurdles are still a little too high to get mass adoption. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And we're seeing a lot of improvements there with on-ramps like Wire and MoonPay and smart contract wallets. And, and so I think those things are getting better, but I think that's a good example of why there's actually a benefit to trying to you know, focus on the set of early adopters that are really bought into you know, the vision of crypto and uh, you know, I, I think those people are willing to get over those initial hurdles and that what's really important is to actually, um, you know, make it so that those people are, you know, doing real things on Web3 where, you know, they're, they're kind of living in the future, right? Basically, we're, we're building tools for crypto natives, which is, you know, a, a, a new, you know, uh, you know, type of individual, I think we need to do to start is to like supercharge these crypto natives and give them superpowers. And even if they have to, you know, go over some of these onboarding steps, give those people superpowers and we build a community of people with superpowers. And I think that, you know, uh, creates the incentive for more and more people to jump over the hurdles and then for, um, you know, the large platforms to help us lower those hurdles. To, uh, you know, until eventually they completely go away and we just have this, uh, you know, beautiful, seamless experience. Yaniv, you recently posted a blog post on Web3 on the Graph site. I'll link to it in the show notes. I want to talk about this. There's a lot to go into here and you kind of start out on the vision for Web3 and how centralized services, you know, kind of have us trapped here. What was your thinking kind of, you know, with this post? And I guess we could just start with the centralized services aspect. When I look at the space, I, I feel like, you know, we have a lot of work cut out for us. And, you know, we're working towards this really big vision of decentralization. And I think, uh, you know, it's easy to kind of get stuck in a, a local maximum 
and not actually make progress towards the big vision. And I feel like, you know, something like crypto and decentralization is really tough because, you know, it, it really is a paradigm change. And, um, and I think it's hard to get alignment on that. And it's hard to kind of keep the flame alive, especially when, you know, markets are going through these, you know, market cycles. And so I, I published that post really to just kind of, uh, you know, keep the flame of, uh, alive and have this beacon that we're um, going towards and really kind of reaffirming um, you know, the ideals of Web3 and, and what it is that we're working on with decentralization. No, I like that. And you have to keep the flame alive. You got to keep energy. You got to keep people building. I guess the only question I would have is that, you know, some of the things you brought up on the centralized services aspect, like, you know, un- these services are unreliable, they could be shut down, you know, they're extractive, which they, you know, they definitely are, they live off our data. But I feel as though consumers, frankly, just don't care at this point, right? Like, you know, people, I'm just wondering, what's going to be the edge to get people into Web3 apps? Yeah, I, I actually agree with that. And I don't think that, um, the route to web three should be to try to like convince people to move away from these large web two services, uh, because these services by and large have network effects and it's, it's tough to disrupt network effects. And so I don't think that like a direct assault like that is viable. Um, but, but that's why I think it's important to kind of uh, look at what is Web3 holistically. And, and Web3 is really a new paradigm. And whenever you have these large technological shifts, um, you know, they, they kind of occur on uh, you know, similar kinds of patterns. Uh, so you know, the same thing happened uh, you know, with, say, the transition between the mainframe and uh, the PC, or before that, you know, the telegraph to the telephone, right? These, these technological shifts, uh, you know, tend to, to have some core new capabilities that um, are very kind of just fundamental, uh, and they're hard to appreciate uh, in the early days. And uh, at first, they kind of look like toys, and, and generally, there's like a set of early adopters that kind of understand the potential of this new technology. And those early adopters are really responsible for uh, growing, you know, this emerging technology out of the toy phase into, um, uh, you know, a maturity where it can really start to be relied upon uh, for more and more activity until that grows to a point where it becomes the mainstream. And uh, when you look at Web3, I think that's going to be, you know, a, a, a 10 plus year process, but that, um, you know, we're kind of starting today. And so, for example, DeFi is, I consider, part of Web3. And I think that, like, DeFi has already kind of had that zero to one moment. You could say uh, last year, DeFi kind of went from potentially like super speculative, you can't really do much with it, to actually there being a, a ton of really interesting activity, right? Where now we have stable coins, we have money markets, we have deriv- derivatives, we have all of these different, you know, financial instruments. And, um, and so I think it's easier for people to now understand, okay, we've got these money Legos and we can use them for interesting things. Uh, whereas Web3, I don't think we've necessarily had that zero to one moment yet. You know, I really believe in decentralization and I don't use any Web3 applications. So, um, so my focus as an entrepreneur is on how do we get from zero to one to a point where even if the technology isn't ready for a billion users, um, how do we get it to a point where it's actually usable uh, for even the say the early adopters, where we can you know build this technology and grow it out of the toy phase and actually get it to a point where uh, we can start um, you know we, we can turbocharge those network effects. Hell yeah, Neve! I, I really love your framing that we shouldn't take on you know, Facebook or, or try and disrupt them because, you know, it's the first time I've kind of heard that from somebody in the space. And because most of the narratives are just like, you know, screw Facebook, let's take them out. And it just seems so unrealistic. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there are things that Web3 can do that, you know, uh, you just couldn't do in Web2. And it's really, it's a complete architectural shift. 
Um, so, so let me kind of talk about those things, right? Uh, so, so Web3, first and foremost, is about verifiable computation. You know, I, I want us to be open to the possibility that the future might look different from you know, the past or the present. Right? Um, you know, humans tend to think linearly, and, and we tend to assume that things are going to stay the same. Uh, but, but technological shifts uh, like the internet are, are non-linearities. And I, I think crypto is going to be the same way. Uh, so, so just like the internet changed things in, in drastic ways that would have been hard to predict, uh, I, I think the same thing is going to happen with crypto in 10 years. Uh, so, so let me kind of paint that picture a little bit. So in 10 years, as a young person joining the workforce, I'm not going to go to a standard four-year university. Right? And I, I'm probably not going to go work at a giant corporation. You know, the, the internet really, you know, you know, changed a lot. And it, it, it you know, the, the rate of information, you know, information can now move a lot faster across borders. Uh, but we haven't necessarily changed, um, you know, uh, the way that society is organized around the internet yet. And I think what crypto enables is, you know, this kind of restructuring around the internet as being like the native jurisdiction. And, um, and there, there are a lot of pieces that need to kind of get rejiggered around uh, to, to, to really allow that to reach its full potential. If you look out to 10 years, I, I think people are going to have a lot more options in, uh, in how they work and, um, and, and how they organize. I mean, I guess my thought is, you know, there's kind of two camps if I, if I have to think about this in the space. I love Bitcoin, you know, don't get me wrong, but I think some people think that, you know, human organization in the future could be a world where, you know, people work remotely, they work for different businesses, they don't go to college, they earn an income in Bitcoin, it transcends borders. But I think there's another kind of view here that we need things beyond Bitcoin to power this level of human organization that is basically Web3. So everything from interaction to attention to data, we can't build that on Bitcoin itself. We have to build that on something like Ethereum or something else. Do you kind of take that view or, or what's your thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the stuff needs to be programmable. You know, money is just one application. And really what we need to do is design systems uh, for organization. And, and so, for example, you know, I think reputation is going to be a really important part of this and building reputation. Hey, guys, I also wanted to tell you about Zenledger, the best tax software for cryptocurrency investors and accountants. It's fast and easy to use, and you can get all of your crypto transactions in one place so you can trade smarter and optimize your taxes. Zenledger offers 24-7 customer support by phone, email, or chat to help you get your taxes done stress-free. And it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee because they know you'll love it. Zenledger is giving an exclusive 15% discount to our listeners when you use coupon code CHAIN15. Go to zenledger.io, linked in the show notes below, to get started and get your taxes done fast. Yaniv, super interesting. You know, on that thread, there's another question there on the path to decentralization. A lot of protocols, you know, recently as we recorded this, kind of faced issues like IOTA, BZX, you know, take your pick, where the team kind of has, you know, God keys, for lack of a better word, to control the protocol, really flies in the face of decentralization. But on the flip side, you know, you need a centralized team to kind of build this out and make sure it's performant and reliable before it manages, you know, potentially trillions of dollars in assets. What's your take on the path to decentralization and kind of that decentralization spectrum? Yeah, for me, it's, it's totally reasonable that, you know, we're building, you know, brand new systems and that, um, you know, building non-gameable, uh, you know, decentralized uh, contracts where money on the line is, is very tough. Uh, and, and so it makes sense to me that this is done in phases so that we have time to test the technology and harden it before we completely throw away the keys. Now, I, I think that, uh, you know, who has those keys and what the governance looks like, I think needs to depend on the application. Right? So if, if you look at something like Maker, 
uh, you know, maker and die is something that's relied upon by the entire DeFi space. And, and so, you know, the risk to an attack there, um, you know, is, you know, significantly greater than, you know, another protocol that maybe doesn't have as much use. So I think that, you know, assessing the risk and, um, you know, going through this kind of progression of increased decentralization over time is something that I'm, I'm personally pretty comfortable with. No, that's fair. I, I'm definitely in that camp as well. The other idea that we talked about earlier a bit, but I want to go back to is the idea of reputation. It's really hard in crypto because we really haven't solved identity yet. And, you know, this has lasting effects through the system, like, you know, the ability to get a loan that's not over collateralized, things along this nature. What's your take on reputation and, and you know, identity in the space for Web3? Yeah, I, I think there's a few teams tackling identity. Um, one of the ones I'm most excited about is a project called Three Box, and uh, you know I think they're doing a, a really great job over there of building the right types of primitives around identity. And you know I think reputation is going to be one of the core primitives of Web three, and you know it's it's really the kind of thing that you need um, you know verifiable computation in order to start you know, building reputation as a first class primitive. It's something that you can, you know, build up over the course of your life um, and use with, uh, you know, across a variety of different applications. And, you know, the same way that you shouldn't be able to just mint money out of thin air, um, you know, reputation also needs to be this kind of thing that you can't just like, you know, print out of thin air. So, so having like a strong immutable ledger and a foundation like a blockchain for, for building that, I think is, is uh, really important. So, you know, today there, there aren't a lot of, uh, you know, protocols that allow you to build reputation, but I think this is going to be an area that becomes increasingly exciting. Uh, so, you know, you might ask, for example, um, you know, what are different ways that you could go about building reputation. And, uh, you know, I can, I can think of, you know, a, a, a few, um, you know, good, good ways that would, you know, basically create signal. So, so for example, if you perform work on chain and that work is verified as being performed well, you know, that should be able to, um, increase your reputation. Uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, it's from getting endorsements by other people that have reputation, right? That could increase your reputation in some area. Um, for example, if you make predictions uh, on chain and those predictions turn out to be true, um, that's another way <clears throat> that you could build reputation, right? And, um, you know, everybody has opinions. Uh, that's something that, you know, the internet makes really clear. Uh, but not everyone knows things. And uh, not everyone is good at everything. And so, you know, in a global world, you know, now, you, you know, uh, with the Internet and with social media and, uh, you know, you, you're, we're seeing information travel like never before in this global economy. And, um, and I, you know, I think we need to come up with ways of pulling signal out of that noise. And I think that you know, these core primitives of reputation are going to be a way that we can, um, you know, start chipping away at that problem. No, that's fair. And do you think that reputation will be crypto native? Like, you know, my interactions linked to, you know, my wallet um, basically drive my score, some say, or do you think that we're going to need some link to the real world? Like, you know, hey, Tom, you know, link your driver's license to um, or your existing credit score to your wallet. Like, I'm just wondering if we're making the full jump uh, on reputation into crypto, or if we're going to link this to the real world. Uh, I, I think people are going to have crypto native reputations uh, on top of their crypto native identities, um, and you might have multiple identities, and so you could spread your reputation across those identities, um, and uh, you're going to build them up via performing, you know, work and, and actions uh, on top of crypto protocols. And then you'll be able to leverage that reputation inside of those crypto protocols. No, that's fair. And Yaniv, I want to talk a little bit about your views on protocols versus platforms. And a lot of this goes back to your view on 
you know, attracting developers and giving them a platform that, or giving them a protocol that will be here, you know, tomorrow. What's your kind of take on protocols versus platforms? I know we've kind of spoken a bit about this offline too. Yeah. So, you know, I think protocols are really like a brand new kind of thing that we're only starting to, you know, fully understand and, and, and appreciate like what they are. And, um, you know, at, at its essence, a protocol is just, you know, a, a set of rules that govern a community. And there's a lot of art and science to protocol design. You know, it's, it's a really interesting field. Um, but, you know, one lens that I like of uh, thinking about protocols through is as um, permissionless job creators, right? So you, you define a set of rules by which people can provide a service to the network, and then there's, you know, governance over, um, you know, what actions various participants can take, uh, you know, how value should flow within that system. And so, you know, the protocol designers, um, just, you know, come up with those initial rules. And, uh, and then on top of that, you have, you know, governance for evolving those rules over time. And then, uh, as a result, you have a system where anyone can come in and provide, um, different types of services and, uh, interact with this network in a permissionless way. I guess your take on protocols, though, I'm just kind of wondering you know, five or 10 years down the road, because a lot of this goes back to back to what we'll have, right? So protocols and dApps are early. I think you and I both agree that we have glimmers of success, MakerDAO, Synthetics, Uniswap, take your pick. But I still think it's hard for people to really see what this will be when it all comes together. And I feel like we're constantly under the narrative that, you know, it'll be big, but we don't know what the killer use cases will be yet. What's your take on what the protocol and DAP space will look like in five or 10 years? Because it looks to me like it's, it's going to be big, obviously. It's just hard to mentally put the pieces together. Yeah. So, so right now, you know, we're primarily focused on the infrastructure layer. And uh, you know, I think the graph, for example, is going to be a protocol that can help prove uh, you know, a lot of uh, these different pieces that, that are required to make a, a protocol really well functioning. And so, uh, for example, you know, the 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 task of the graph is to enable data curators who know you know um, where data is coming from and how to organize it to build these subgraphs which make that data easily accessible uh, and then we also want to have application developers on top that are building great usable applications that are using those subgraphs um, we may also want to incentivize uh, people to actually build the underlying protocols that our subgraphs can, uh, you know, pull data from. So, you know, these are all kind of parts of this sort of data economy. And um, at the end, they're, they're very like measurable results. Um, so, for example, uh, query volume. We know that a, um, uh, a data curator has done a good job if there's demand for those subgraphs, which means that you know, there's applications that are querying that. So, so that's an example of like a signal that, um, you know, for example, if, if people are paying per query, that becomes very difficult to game. And that's the kind of thing that then uh, makes a subgraph uh, or, or makes a protocol, uh, you know, much easier to evaluate when you have those types of like on-chain metrics that you can be looking at. You know, these are like the objective functions of the protocol. And, um, and, and, and then we can kind of look at how the protocol facilitates uh, achieving these objective functions. Yaniv, looking at the real world, you know, what's the comparison for the graph to the real world? Because I feel like if we have a comparison to the real world, you know, mentally, it's kind of easy to understand what the graph could potentially you know, drive here? Like, what, what do you think about as your real world comparison? You know, it might have bits and pieces of, uh, you know, a few different things. So, so there, there's definite parallels to Google, for example, in that, like, we're trying to index all the world's structured information. But, you know, Google is indexing web pages, and we're indexing, you know, raw data that's, um, you know, s serving applications. You know, there, there's also parallels to, you know, AWS and cloud computing. 
um, because this is essentially infrastructure for running applications on top of. But but really, it's it's um, you know a, a new kind of thing for enabling uh, computing platforms. So from that perspective, you know you could say that maybe we're closest to like the web. No, I mean. You know, I'm kind of glad I didn't know as much about you guys going into this because now I, you know, now I get it. I mean, you guys are a query protocol. You get data off of blockchains, off of networks, and you know, you guys allow developers to focus on building their actual DApps instead of having to focus on, you know, scrambling for data that they need to build them. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Moving higher level while I have you, because I'm interested, you know, you guys are built and you're querying mostly Ethereum, um, you know, applications, Web3 apps, you know, give or take. There's a lot of debate on, you know, many or few public blockchains. What's your view there? Um, because it seems to me like vertical competition is the one that's going to win out. But I'm also wondering if you guys are going to be querying other platforms as well, because you know if you're able, if a developer is able to query multiple blockchains, they could build some pretty cool apps using uh, using the graph. Yeah, so uh, we're going to be expanding to multiple blockchains later this year, and I'm really excited about the developments uh, you know happening in the space. There's a bunch of protocols that are going to be launching this year, um, so you know that that might be other blockchains like Near. You know, I think that team is doing a really great job, and I think uh, you know they're they're building some some really impressive tech. Uh, I'm also you know interested in this idea of application specific chains, so um, you know uh, chains that could be enabled through protocols like Polkadot and Cosmos. I think there's going to be a certain set of applications for which that is the right computing model. Um, and then I'm I'm really interested in kind of you know layer two kind of work. So for example, there's a, a protocol called Scale with a K that's essentially a side chain to Ethereum um, that's going to make it uh, much faster and cheaper uh, to run Solidity smart contracts in a way that um, you know can integrate pretty well with the rest of the Ethereum ecosystem. And then there's um, other layer two architectures like rollups. Uh, which similarly lets you run Ethereum smart contracts in this kind of layer two. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's going to be uh, a lot of new block space coming available as these protocols launch. And I think we should expect to see uh, the price of transactions dropping. And, um, you know, I think it would be very reasonable for us to see transactions like under a cent and having blocks confirm, you know, within, you know, even one or two seconds. And I think, you know, at that point, um, you know, I think these blockchains become, uh, you know, really viable for a, a whole host of applications. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's going to be certain applications for which you want like maximum security. And I think it's going to be really tough to beat Ethereum for those types of applications. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's, you know, a, a lot of applications where, you know, maybe tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of security is enough. And really what you want is fast, cheap transactions. And so I think it's great that we're going to have all of this kind of variety to choose from. And then the graph can really act as an abstraction layer on top, where as an application developer, you don't have to know where a particular smart contract is running. As long as, um, you know, you're using the graph, you know that you can trust that um, you know the data is uh, uh, is dependable, and you can just build your applications directly on top of the graph. Excellent overview. I, I really like the framing there, and I definitely agree on your earlier points as well. I, I think the near guys, Alex Nilly and team, are, are you know some of the smartest guys in the space. We've had them on the pod. I've had Jack and Stan from Scale on as well. So we're seeing all these pieces come together on. You know, one stack, and then there's other stacks and other chains you guys could work with. The other question there for you guys is, you know, it's really hard to envision the stack coming together because, you know, there's no CEO, you know, there's no blockchain stack CEO saying, you know, let's build these pieces and integrate these pieces. It's all kind of coming together kind of randomly based on need. Do you think that we'll get to a point where the full stack is kind of solidified? 
Yeah, that's that's what I'm expecting to happen this year. Now, it's not going to be the full stack, right? The full stack is is going to take uh, you know several years uh, to mature, and it's just going to keep getting faster and 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 get more capabilities. But but I think we're going to see that zero to one moment happen this year. And so, for example, like you know, we're working with a bunch of these different protocols, and you know, we're seeing those pieces come together. And I think. Uh, you know, in general, you, you need to see just a few applications that are kind of like the demo apps um, get to product market fit. And I don't think you need a lot of them, you know, even just five to 10 great applications that are really usable that, that, that people, at least the, you know, the early adopter types choose to use on a regular basis. Um, you know, that becomes then the example for you know, the next thousand and a hundred thousand apps. And, and so I think that, you know, getting to that point of having, you know, five to 10 good example demo dApps built on top of, you know, these protocols, I think we're going to already start to see that this year. No, that, that's fair. And Yaniv, it's incredible having you on. Like I said, I didn't know too much about the graph for your Web3 views, but I'm glad we were able to work through it. I learned a lot and I, I frankly agree with a lot of, you know, what you're saying. I think we're a ways away from Web3, but I think we're getting there and I think people shouldn't discount it and we've glimmers of success. And I also see the value in, you know, having this query layer that could help developers really add value and, you know, spin out dApps and the use cases even faster. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Neve, it's been a pleasure having you on until next time. Tell, um, let our listeners know where they could, you know, learn more about the graph, follow you and your writing and uh, to get engaged. Yeah. So you can follow us on Twitter at, at graph protocol. Um, you know, we have a, a really uh, great active blog at thegraph.com. And, uh, you know, if any of your listeners are interested in running nodes in our upcoming testnet, uh, shoot us an email at info at thegraph.com. That's incredible. You know, we could talk for hours here, but I really appreciate this. And uh, until next time. Uh, thanks a lot, Tom. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.